0: Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Marc Vinette. Let's examine the exploits of Samuel de Champlain, better known in English as Champlain, the father of New France. Let's learn more about this with the help of our friends at LibriVox.
1: The founder of New France, a chronicle of Champlain, Champlain at Quebec. What follows is an illuminating comment upon the conditions that prevailed under the Bourbon monarchy. As Champlain saw things, the merchants who clamored for freedom of trade were greedy pot-hunters. All they want, he says, is that men should expose themselves to a thousand dangers to discover peoples and territories, that they themselves may have the profit and others the hardship. It is not reasonable that one should capture the lamb and another go off with the fleece. If they had been willing to participate in our discoveries, use their means, and risk their persons, they would have given evidence of their honor and nobleness, but, on the contrary, they show clearly that they are impelled by pure malice, that they may enjoy the fruit of our labors equally with ourselves. Against folk of this sort, Champlain felt he had to protect the national interests which were so dear to him and De Monts As things went, there was only one way to secure protection. At Fontainebleau, a great noble was not habituated to render help without receiving a consideration. But protection could be bought by those who were able to pay for it. The patron selected by Champagne was a Comte de Soissons, a Bourbon by lineage and first cousin of Henry IV. His kinship to the boy king gave him, among other privileges, the power to exact from the regent gifts and offices as the price of his support. Possessing this leverage, Soissons caused himself to be appointed Viceroy of Canada, with a twelve-year monopoly of the fur trade above Quebec. The monopoly thus re-established, its privileges could be sublet, Soissons receiving cash for the rights he conceded to the merchants, and they taking their chance to turn a profit out of the transaction. Such at least was the theory, but before Soissons could turn his post into a source of revenue, he died. Casting about for a suitable successor, Champlain selected another Prince of the Blood, Henri de Bourbon, Prince de Conde, who duly became Viceroy of Canada and holder of the monopoly in succession to his uncle, the Comte de Soissons. The part of Champlain in these transactions is very conspicuous, and justly so. There was no advantage in being Viceroy of Canada unless the post produced a revenue, and before the Viceroy could receive a revenue, someone was needed to organize the chief Laurentian traders into a company strong enough to pay Soissons, or Conde, a substantial sum. Champlain was convinced that the stability of trade, upon which in turn exploration depended, could be secured only in this way. It was he who memorialized President Jean-Jean, enlisted the sympathy of the king's almoner, Beaulieu, appealed to the royal council, proposed the office of Viceroy to Soissons, and began the endeavor to organize a new trading company. President Jean-Jean, one of the chief advisers of Marie de Medici. In the early part of his career, he was president of the Parlement of Dijon and an important member of the Extreme Catholic Party. After the retirement of the Duc de Sully, 1611, he was placed in charge of the finances of France. Considering that early in 1612 he suffered a serious fall from his horse, this record of activity is sufficiently credible for one twelve-month. Meanwhile, the Indians at Sault-Saint-Louis grieved at his absence, and his enemies told them he was dead. It was not until 1614 that the new program in its entirety could be carried out. This time the delay came, not from the court, but from the merchants. Negotiations were in progress when the ships sailed for the voyage of 1613, but Champlain could not remain to conclude them, as he felt that he must keep faith with the Indians. However, on his return to France that autumn, he resumed the effort and by the spring of 1614, the merchants of Rouen, Saint-Malo, and La Rochelle had been brought to terms among themselves as participants in a monopoly which was leased from the Viceroy. Conde received a thousand crowns a year, and the new company also agreed to take out six families of colonists each season. In return, it was granted the monopoly for eleven years. Mont was a member of the company, and Quebec became its headquarters in Canada. But the moving spirit was Champlain, who was appointed lieutenant to the viceroy with a salary and the right to levy, for his own purposes, four men from each ship trading in the river. Once more, disappointment followed. Save for Monts. Champlain's company was not inspired by Champlain's patriotism. During the first three years of its existence, the obligation to colonize was willfully disregarded, while in the fourth year, the treatment accorded Louis Hébert shows that good faith counted for as little with the fur traders when they acted in association, as when they were engaged in cut-throat competition. Champlain accepted, Hebert was the most admirable of those who risked death in the attempt to found a settlement at Quebec. He was not a Norman peasant, but a Parisian apothecary. We have already seen that he took part in the Acadian venture of Dumont and Poutrincourt After the capture of Port Royal by the English, he returned to France, 1613, and reopened his shop. Three years later, Champlain was authorized by the company to offer him and his family favorable terms if they would emigrate to Quebec, the consideration being 200 crowns a year for three years, besides maintenance. On this understanding, Hebert sold his house and shop, bought an equipment for the new home, and set off with his family to embark at Aux Here he found that Champlain's shareholders were not prepared to stand by their agreement. The company first beat him down from 200 to 100 crowns a year, and then stipulated that he, his wife, his children, and his domestic should serve it for the three years during which the grant was payable. Even at the end of three years, when he found himself at liberty to till the soil, he was bound to sell produce to the company at the prices prevalent in France. The company was to have his perpetual service as a chemist for nothing, and he must promise in writing to take no part in the fur trade. Hébert had cut off his retreat and was forced to accept these hard terms but it is not strange that under such conditions, colonists should have been few. Segar, the Recolet missionary, says the company treated bear so badly because it wished to discourage colonization. What it wanted was the benefit of the monopoly, without the obligation of finding settlers who had to be brought over for nothing.
0: Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
1: A man of honor like Champlain could not have tricked Hébert into the bad bargain he made, and their friendship survived the incident but a company which transacted its business in this fashion was not likely to enjoy long life. Its chief asset was Champlain's friendship with the Indians, especially after his long sojourn with them in 1615 and 1616. Some years, particularly 1617, showed a large profit, but as time went on, friction arose between the Huguenots of La Rochelle and the Catholics of Rouen. Then there were interlopers to be prosecuted, and the quarrels of Conde with the government brought with them trouble to the merchants whose monopoly depended on his grant. For three years, 1616-19, to the Viceroy of Canada languished in the Bastille. Shortly after his release, he sold his viceregal rights to the Duke of Montmorency, Admiral of France. The price was 11,000 crowns. In 1619, Champlain's company ventured to disagree with its founder and, as a consequence, another crisis arose in the affairs of New France. The cause of dispute was the company's unwillingness to keep its promises regarding colonization. Champlain protested. The company replied that Pontgrave should be put in charge at Quebec. Champlain then said that Pontgrave was his old friend, and he hoped that they would always be friends, that he was at Quebec as the viceroy's representative, charged with the duty of defending his interests. The leader of Champlain's opponents, among the shareholders was Boyer, a trader who had formerly given much trouble to Dumont, but was now one of the associates. When in the spring of 1619, Champlain attempted to sail for Quebec as usual, Boyer prevented him from going aboard. There followed an appeal to the crown, in which Champlain was fully sustained, and Boyer did penance by offering a public apology before the exchange at Rouen. It was shortly after this incident that Conde abdicated in favor of Montmorency. The admiral, like his predecessor, accepted a thousand crowns a year and named Champlain as his lieutenant. He also instituted an inquiry regarding the alleged neglect of the company to maintain the post at Quebec. The investigation showed that abundant cause existed for depriving the company of its monopoly, and in consequence, the grant was transferred, on similar terms, to William and Emery Duquesne. Here, complications at once ensued. The Duquesnes, who were natives of Rural, were also Huguenots, a fact that intensified the ill-feeling which had already arisen on the St. Lawrence between Catholic and heretic. The dispute between the new beneficiaries and the company founded by Champlain involved no change in the policy of the crown towards trade and colonization. It was a quarrel of persons, which eventually reached a settlement in 1622. The Decaynes then compromised by reorganizing the company and giving their predecessors five-twelfths of the shares. The recital of these intricate events will at least illustrate the difficulties which beset Champlain in his endeavor to build up new France. There were problems even enough had he received loyal support from the crown and the company. With the English and Dutch in full rivalry, he saw that an aggressive policy of expansion and settlement became each year more imperative. Instead, he was called on to withstand the cabals of self-seeking traders who shirked their obligations, and to endure the apathy of a government which was preoccupied with palace intrigues. At Quebec itself, the two bright spots were the convent of the Recollets, footnote, the Recollets were a branch of the Franciscan order noted for the austerity of their rule, end of footnote, and the little farm of Louis-Hébert. The Recollets first came to New France in 1615, and began at once by language study to prepare for their work among the Montagny and Hurons. It was a stipulation of the viceroy that six of them should be supported by the company, and in the absence of parish priests, they ministered to the ungodly hangers-on of the fur trade, as well as to the Indians. Louis Hébert and his admirable family were very dear to the fathers. In 1617, all the buildings which had been erected at Quebec lay by the water's edge. Hébert was the first to make a clearing on the heights. His first domain covered less than ten acres, but it was well tilled he built a stone house, which was 38 feet by 19. Besides making a garden, he planted apple trees and vines. He also managed to support some cattle. When one considers what all this means in terms of food and comfort, it may be guessed that the fur traders, wintering down below on salt pork and smoked eels, must have felt much respect for the farmer in his stone mansion on the cliff. We have from Champlain's own lips a valuable statement as to the condition of things at Quebec in 1627, the year when Louis Hebert died. We were in all, he says, 65 souls, including men, women, and children. Of the 65, only 18 were adult males fit for hard work, and this small number must be reduced to two or three if we include only the tillers of the soil. Besides these, a few adventurous spirits were away in the woods with the Indians, learning their language and endeavoring to exploit the beaver trade. But 20 years after the founding of Quebec, the French in Canada, all told, numbered less than 100. Contrast with this the state of Virginia 15 years after the settlement of Jamestown. By 1622, says John Fiske, the population of Virginia was at least 4,000. The tobacco fields were flourishing and lucrative. Durable houses had been built and made comfortable with furniture brought from England. And the old squalor was everywhere giving way to thrift. The area of colonization was pushed up by the James River as far as Richmond. This contrast is not to be interpreted to the personal disadvantage of Champlain. The slow growth and poverty of Quebec were due to no fault of his. It is rather the measure of his greatness that he was undaunted by disappointment and unembittered by the pettiness of spirit which met him at every turn. A memorial which he presented in 1618 to the Chamber of Commerce at Paris discloses his dream of what might be a city at Quebec named Ludovica a city equal in size to St. Denis, and filled with noble buildings grouped round the Church of the Redeemer. Tributary to this capital was a vast region watered by the St. Lawrence, and abounding in rolling plains, beautiful forests, and rivers full of fish. From Ludovica, the heathen were to be converted and a passage discovered to the east. So important a trade route would be developed, that from the tolls alone there would be revenue to construct great public works. Rich mines and fat cornfields fill the background. Such was the Quebec of Champlain's vision. If only France would see it so. Check out the
0: YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Marc Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.